Hi, I'm Sukrat Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 14th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, journalists and activists on topics related to their areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Seema Sohi, who is a professor of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado, and we discuss her book Echoes of Mutiny, which examines the radical anti-colonial politics of South Asian intellectuals and migrant workers based in North America during the early 20th century, as well as the inter-imperial efforts of the US and the British states to repress them. This book is a personal favourite of mine and I've been a huge fan of Seema Sohi's work because it really illustrates the radical dimension of history found among the Sikhs and the Punjabi diaspora. So it's a real pleasure to bring this episode to you all. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Sikh Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Sikh Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now, they've published a new series of Gurumukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast to learn more about the echoes of mutiny with Professor Seema Sohi. Who is Professor Seema Sohi? My name is Seema Sohi, and I'm an associate professor of ethnic studies and history at the University of Colorado Boulder. I um, come from California, and I was, I was born in, in Ealing, in London, and then my family migrated to California um, in the late 70s, and I grew up there and uh, did my doctoral work at the University of Washington, and I have a PhD in 20th century American history. And when I began doing my dissertation work back in 2004, I was really interested in learning more about the history of Indian Americans in particular, because that was my history, that was my family's history, that was a a history that I've never been taught. I knew very little about the history of Indians and South Asians in the United States. And when I began doing some research, doing some background secondary literature reading, I came across um, some references to the Gadar Party. The Gadar Party is a revolution or was a revolutionary movement that was organized. It emerged out of Oregon in 1913, and it was um, headquartered in San Francisco. And it was dedicated to, it was an anti-colonial movement dedicated to the overthrow of the British Empire through armed revolution. And I was shocked that such a movement had existed, that the earliest history of Indian Americans in the United States was essentially a history of radical political activism. And it was a history that no one I knew talked about, no one seemed to know about. And I um, decided that this is what I wanted to do my dissertation work on. And the concern, of course, was from some, some of my advisors was that there wouldn't be enough material, that there would not be enough archival material to be able to write such a history. And there's a wonderful book that came out, I believe at this point it was in the 80s, called Passage from India by Joan Jensen. And that was sort of the text and um, the only text really that that I had to go off of. And I I saw that Jensen had done some archival research in Washington, D.C. So I thought, well, there must be something. And let me go see what is there. And so on a really kind of with a blind leap of faith, I went to D.C. on a three-week trip hoping that I would find something um, that would allow me to write this history. And what I found shocked me because not only was there substantial archival material on early Indian American history, but it was archival material that was very unexpected because it was essentially what I say is it was an archive 
of surveillance. It was an archive of political activism. What I was expecting to find was the usual kind of ship manifests that showed who was coming when, you know, perhaps some newspaper articles, perhaps some congressional hearings that talked about the efforts to exclude Indian people from the country. And I found all of that. But what I found that really excited me was files upon files of surveillance reports and correspondence by immigration officials, British officials, officials in India, um, who are essentially spying on these migrant workers. Well, let me say this. Some of them are migrant workers, some of them were students, and some of them were intellectuals who came here explicitly to engage in political activism. They were hoping to find an asylum here, um, a safe haven from which they could organize against British rule. And so all of these officials are incredibly worried about the emergence of this anti-colonial movement and its potential growth. And so this is what I ended up uh, finding in the archives. And it allowed me to write my book. It allowed me to write this history that documents um, things that are really important to me. Um, The migration of Indians that, you know, their political activism, their commitment to social justice. And then of course, um, larger state and imperial histories. Um, So for instance, like this isn't just a, a history of Indian migration to the United States. This is a history of how Indian migration to the United States played such an important role in the U.S. state's expansion of its own surveillance apparatus. And this is a history of how Indian migration to the United States was such um, an important component of what would become a national security discourse used to regulate immigration that would persist for the next century and indeed continues to exist today. The idea that certain migrants pose a threat to national security and therefore must be excluded. We can locate the origins of that kind of thinking and rhetoric back in this early 20th century um, in relation to these Indian migrants. And so that's the background for, uh, for this book project. And again, it gave me an opportunity to really think about and write about things that are so important to me. Um, thinking about the project of America, its own claims of exceptionalism and its own limitations and unfulfilled promises is a question that's always interested me and driven a lot of my research, as well as thinking about social justice and political activism is something I'm very committed to and have always been very interested in. And then being able to write a history of the community that I am part of because a lot of these migrants were in California um, and the Pacific Coast more broadly, and that's where I come from. And so these spaces where they're having meetings, got their meetings and, and um, organizing at the Stockton Gudvara, these are all places that I grew up in. And so that was very meaningful for me. What was your particular research question or focus when you wrote this thesis or book at the time? And how did you go about that with respect to your methodology and sources? Sure. Yeah. So when I began my research, I have to, you know, I didn't have a research question because I didn't know what I was going to find. And so all I knew was I want to... And and I am a historian by training, right? And so historians, their research method is usually, unless they're doing an intellectual history, perhaps. But um, our research methods as historians are based in the archives, right, is the archival research. And I've done a lot of reading, you know, I'm very familiar with the work of the Subaltern Collective out of India, the post-colonial scholarship, that talks about the need to um, engage with the erasures and silences of the archive, Right. Um, Because the archive is is always it's always a colonial archive. It's always a state archive. It's always an archive, a liberal archive. Right. It's always an archive comprised of those in power. And so part of me, you know, went to the archives in D.C. thinking that 
I might have to do that kind of work because I simply did not know what I would find. So I, my research question really began as, I want to write a history of Indian migration to the U.S. in the early 20th century. And I, and I say the early 20th century because that is when the real wave of migrations, as small as it was, began. Right. So there were certainly there were people from the subcontinent who came to the U.S. Um, in small numbers at various points throughout American history. And Vivek Bald has a book called Bengali Harlem that talks about Bengali peddlers and merchants who went to, um, you know, the, the New Jersey seaboard and New Orleans and other places to peddle silks and things. Um, but if we want to talk about an actual sort of wave of migration, well, that's located in the early 20th century on the West Coast. And there were, at the time that I began my dissertation, there just were not a lot of books or articles out there. And in fact, many of those that were, were, were a bit dated. And I don't mean to say that in, because they're still very, very important um, works, but they had been published in, you know, maybe the 70s or the 80s. And the works on the Gadar Party were often done by Indian historians back in the 60s and 70s. So no one had really looked at the topic um, and written something in recent years, right? And I thought, well, and you know, history is always changing. The questions we ask are always changing. They're always dependent upon the, the social and political context of our time. And I was just interested in thinking. And of course, this is the time, you know, 2004, after 9-11, we are in the war on terror. We are deep in the war on terror, the never-ending war on terror. Terrorism and national security and all these questions, all these ideas are being circulated. And so I, I, I thought it was a great interest to me to sort of revisit this history and write a history in light of the moment that I was living through, right? And so when I went to the archives, I went initially to D.C., Washington, D.C., and I went to the National Archives. And as I said, I was, I was so um, astounded to find these surveillance records. I did not realize the extent to which these early Indian migrants were being so closely monitored and heavily surveilled by the state. My understanding of them was that they came as migrant workers. Um, they became agricultural entrepreneurs in the San Joaquin Valley of California, which is where I come from. And that was about it. And so to begin to see evidence in the archives of their quite radical anti-colonial politics. I mean, they were revolutionaries, right? Um, was surprising to me. And, and then on top of that, because I think that in some ways they've been, one of the things I write about in my book is that the Indian historians, I mean, from India, who have written books about the Gadar Party have often written about the Gadar movement as an Indian nationalist movement, as a movement that while it emerged out of the West Coast of the United States was almost solely focused on um, secure, overthrowing British rule and, and forging an independent Indian nation state. But what I found in the archive complicates that story because what it reveals is not only were they working towards overthrowing British rule and establishing an Indian independent nation state, but they were also very much engaged with critiquing racism in an American context and in a larger British white settler colonial context. So for them, the struggle to establish an independent India was always the same struggle as contesting racial discrimination in the United States. And that also um, really excited me when I, when I began to learn that, right? That their resistance was not something, or their, and their radical politics was not something that they only practiced 
to then go back to India and sort of focus on Indian context. It was also always about calling out America's own hypocrisies, America's own contradictions, right? And so what I began to realize is, and when I say anti-colonialism, for me, anti-colonialism is also always anti-racism, right? That their movement against colonial rule in India was also always a movement against racial hierarchy and white supremacy the world over. Um, And then I went sort of from DC to Canada to Ottawa and looked at the Public Archives of Canada, which is also an amazing record of Indian anti-colonialism and British surveillance. And um, finally, I went to the British Library in London. What was happening on the geopolitical level that made these migrants such a threat? What was the political climate which built the consciousness of these radicals that made them such a thorn to the side of the growing and establishing US empire? or more generally to the inter-imperial network with the UK you describe? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So a couple of things. One, there there was a real fear about anarchist movements at the time because President William McKinley in the United States had been assassinated um, by uh, a man of of Polish descent who was an American citizen, um, an alleged anarchist. And... There was a phenomenon happening in European cities all across Europe of alleged anarchists, you know, um, uh, throwing bombs and and targeting certain state officials. And so there was a real anti-anarchist fervor, I would say, uh, in the United States at this time. So I think there was that was happening. Um, Also, the U.S. was engaged in its own overseas imperial project at the time in the Philippines. And of course, the United States has always been an imperial country since its formation. Right. It was but it was a it was a continental expansion as opposed to an overseas expansion, which is what happened in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War in 1898. And then the United States really began to assert itself as a uh, formidable imperial force in the Asia-Pacific region. And so the United States was very much interested in expanding its power by um, expanding imperially across Asia-Pacific. And so while a lot of these Indian radicals, um, I mean, I don't know how much they believed it, but they certainly said that the United States had a moral obligation to offer them asylum because of its own anti-imperial history against Britain. Um, In the eyes of the American government, the the solidarity with Britain, the racial solidarity against against the Atlantic um, was much more important, right? That was the true relationship. And I think this inter-imperial collaboration between the U.S. and British empires at the time was a collaboration that was in many ways premised upon a shared concern of the rise of anti-colonial fervor across the globe. And the notion that the United States would be providing a safe haven to people trying to overthrow the British empire, well, that was a threat not only to an ally of the United States, but I think in the eyes of a lot of American officials, that was a threat to their own power as well, right? That was a threat to their their rule, um, their colonization of the Philippines. That was a threat to their aspiring imperial ambitions across Asia and Pacific. And also, and I really appreciate this question that you've asked me because um, I would say at this time, there was also a real rise of sort of um, what, what some scholars have called like the white Pacific um, or a white settler colonial racial solidarity, right? And so um, the United States is a settler colonial nation, Canada is a settler colonial nation, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. It's no coincidence in my mind that all of these countries are simultaneously implementing anti-Asian, particularly anti-Indian immigration policy 
and referring to one another and expressing kinship and, and solidarity with one another in this cause to protect white men's countries, right? And so I think that's also happening in this moment is as a consequence of empire, uh, you begin to see the migration of, in this case, um, South Asian people all across the globe as workers. And then you begin to see these settler colonial countries closing down their borders to the entry of these, of these workers as part of a larger cause of preserving uh, a particular racial demographic um, and a, a kind of the notion, as, as they said in Canada, that these are white men's countries that needed to be preserved for white people. And so that is very much a geopolitical, con um, that is very much part of the geopolitical context that is shaping these exclusionary movements. And then finally, I would say World War I, because the Gother movement formed in 1913 and World War One, of course, begins in 1914. And it is, it is the outbreak of the war that prompts other activists to go back to India to implement this revolution, um, in many ways they weren't ready for it. Perhaps India was not would never would not have been ready for it for quite a while. But um, because the war broke out and Britain was, they believed, going to be distracted by the by the war in Europe, that this was an opportune time to go back to India and begin the revolution. So I would say World War One was also uh, a really important factor. Um, in, in what's happening in this moment. You write in detail about them being colonized subjects in the homeland. And upon migration, then they get encountered with facing racism and white supremacy abroad, which brought home a lot of these realizations about the commonalities and the interconnectedness between the two systems. It had a large impact on their consciousness and their organizing across the white settler colonies, uh, such as Australia, Canada, US, Kenya, and so on. Could you please elaborate more on that? One of the things that I think is so interesting about the emergence and the growth of this movement is that the men, and they were primarily men, who became involved in this anti-colonial movement, they did not come here as revolutionaries <laughs> at all, right? Um, so when we talk about who these people were, 90% of them were Punjabi Sikhs from five agricultural districts in Punjab. Nearly 50% of those were veterans in the British Indian Army. And so they're not coming here as revolutionaries, right? There were some activists and intellectuals who did come for that purpose, but the vast majority are coming as migrant workers and they're coming because they are trying to send money back home so that their family in Punjab can maintain their land holdings, right? And it is the racism and the economic exploitation and the efforts to exclude them from the United States, that's what politicized them, right? And it's really interesting to think about because one wonders, if the United States hadn't had this severe, restrictive immigration regime, um, if, this, if this movement would have even come into fruition. So what happens then is that certainly, you know, certainly while they may not have been revolutionaries, there's no doubt that, that they would have been um, exposed to revolutionary ideas, right, in Punjab at the time. Um, but... And they come to the United States seeking labor opportunities and they encounter, and, and it was quite violent, right? I mean, this isn't just soft discrimination. I mean, this is sometimes racial violence that erupts in a place like Bellingham, Washington in 1907, where all of the um, workers who are primarily Sikh workers are literally driven out of the town of Bellingham by a mob, right, that says, we don't want you here. And so they're encountering, you know, real racial violence. And, you know, another example would be that 
The initial wave of Punjabi or Indian migrants, 90% of whom are Punjabi Sikh, the real the first year that we see a significant number is 1905. And it kind of goes up gradually every year until then. But in 1908, Canada passed what was called the Continuous Journey Law. And it said that if you do not arrive to Canada by continuous journey from the country of which you are a citizen, you are not allowed to enter. And that law was explicitly designed to exclude Indian migrants. And the the reason they used the language that they did, this continuous journey law, is because Britain said you cannot implement a law that is going to explicitly exclude Indian subjects because that's going to cause a problem for us back in India. There's already a growing nationalist movement. So we're very sympathetic to your cause, but you need to come up with some language that's going to make it not explicitly uh, excluding a group of people. So they have the continuous journey law and that gets passed in 1908 and that virtually closes the door to Canada. So of course, then a lot of Indian migrants begin looking to the United States and the U.S. Immigration Department expresses this this anxiety, right, that, that the United States is going to be overrun, as they said, by Indian migrants. So they needed to do something. And so in the United States, there had already been a kind of anti-Asian tradition, if you will. The Chinese had already been excluded. The Japanese had already been excluded. And so the Indian migrants were going to be the next target, right? Um, And so in 1909, you know, there is pressure from these exclusionary groups, from labor groups, to the U.S. Congress to pass laws to exclude Indian people. And it it wasn't going to be immediate. It would eventually get passed in 1917 with the 1917 Immigration Act. But beginning in 1909, U.S. immigration officials at ports in Seattle and San Francisco began excluding 50% of Indians that were arriving at those ports. And there was no exclusionary law on the books. So the way that they did this was they used this provision that was already in the immigration law called the likely to become a public charge clause. And they said to the arriving Indian migrants, the prejudice against Indian people is so great on the Pacific coast that the chances of you finding work are are going to be impacted. And there's a likelihood you could become a public charge. So we're going to exclude you. And so to the migrants who who have made this journey and they arrive in San Francisco and they're expecting entry to be denied on this really spurious claim of this public charge clause was deeply um, offensive and, and a hardship, right? And a lot of Indian migrants who've already been admitted, who are becoming leaders, right, local leaders, would show up at the immigration stations and they, and they would say, we can give 12, mi- 12 people le- uh, employment right now. If you release them, right? And immigration officials, you know, often wouldn't. And so there's a real um, feeling amongst the migrants who are here and who are trying to get in that this is just arbitrarily like discriminatory laws that are being directed against them. And they came to understand, or they came to believe, I should say, that the reason they were being so discriminated against was because they were subjects of the British Empire. They were colonized subjects. And so the idea was we don't have a government that will speak for us. We don't have a government that will protect us, right? Um, And so we are virtually kind of degraded the world over. We're degraded at home and we're degraded everywhere we go, right? And so this is how they began to kind of understand their situation and assert their um, their resistance, right? Their resistance to both discriminatory laws in the U.S. context and Canadian context, and then to British, to the British Empire back home. And how did all of that lead to the construction of this Hindu menace that you write about? One of the things that I find so interesting about this this period, and, and I write about this in my book, is that I think historical understandings um, for a long time about why Indians were excluded from the United States were premised upon the idea that there was just such an anti-Asian sentiment in this country. And there was. I mean, to be an aspiring politician from California, Oregon, or Washington in the early 20th century almost required that one um, 
uh, articulate their sympathy to the white, to exclusionists, right? And so I think that was such a dominant history for so long. But what I found was that a lot of congressional representatives and certainly immigration officials were making a case for Indian exclusion based on their um, their radical politics. And so there's this convergence. So I think in the U.S. at this time, there is a definitely a very strong anti-immigrant sentiment, particularly anti-Asian sentiment. There is also a very strong anti-radical sentiment. And the Hindu menace is where these two ideologies really um, fuse together, where they merge. And when I say Hindu menace, what that means is, um, and this is a term that was used by officials at the time, it's not my, my own term necessarily, but it speaks to the idea that Hindus, as they were called, which is clearly a, mis- a misnomer, um, constituted a menace, a threat, right, to the U.S., to national security, to Western imperial expansion all across the globe. And so the idea is that they needed to be excluded, not necessarily because they were, this is the language that was used to exclude Asians at the time. They were unassimilable, they were cheap laborers, they would lower the standard of living of the white American worker, right? But, and that's its own kind of racial formation. That's a set of racial images that is being produced and circulated to to justify Asian, anti-Asian racism and Asian exclusion. But what I found is um, when we talk about Indian migrants at the time, yes, all of those discourses are circulating about assimilability, about cheap labor, but what is also very prevalent is is an anti-radicalism on behalf of the state, right? Or being expressed by the state. And the idea was these migrants were dangerous, right? They were coming. And and, and I love these quotes. And I talk about this in my book, these um, hearings that happened in 1914. And they were hearings about in the House of Representatives, I think it was the Committee on Immigration and Naturalization to talk about potentially implementing a law to exclude Indian people, or as they were called, Hindu laborers. And it begins, the hearing begins as we would expect it to, you know, they're, um, you know, they can't be assimilated here. Um, you know, they're taking workers, they're taking jobs away from white workers. They're taking lower wages, et cetera, et cetera. But as the hearings go on, what, what begins to be emphasized more and more by particularly like Congressman John Raker, um, and, you know, other congrats, Albert Johnson, these are congressmen from Washington, California is these men need to be excluded because they are revolutionaries, because they are seeking to, to make the United States as one, I think John Raker put it, a hotbed of revolution, right? And so this was unacceptable, right? That, that the idea that, that immigrants are going to seek entry into the United States to, um, for political reasons and then to forge um, revolutionary struggles across the globe uh, had to be shut down, right? And so what you begin to see then is what I call the, the kind of racial formation of the Hindu menace. The idea that Indian migrants who are here at that time are a threat, are dangerous as a race, right? Because they come with these revolutionary ideas, they seek to make this country a hotbed of revolution, and then they're going to take that mobilization and those ideas out into the world and pose a real threat to Anglo-American imperialism the world over. You also write in another article titled Sites of Sedition for, I believe, the Sikh Formations Journal which looks at the role of the Gurdwaras at a time and how they started to mature as a society in their organizing. So for example, you start to see the Khalsa Diwan Society and the Hindu Association USA, and they're all starting to come together and encountering these ex-military servicemen from the British army among the workers and laborers. And then there's this farrago of consciousness developing. What is the significant role of that period, in particular reference with the Gurdwaras and these associations that start to develop around that time? 
Well, um, and this is one of the things that, you know, as if you do archival research, you, you have this, this idea in your mind that you're going to go to the archives and you're going to have this sort of eureka moment. Right. And, and sometimes it happens and oftentimes, a lot of times it doesn't. Um, but I had this real moment and I'll never forget when I was doing research and I came across a photo of the Stockton Gudvara in the, I believe it was 1920. And I couldn't believe it because I grew up going to that Gudvara. And it was identified by the British Empire as a site of sedition. That as 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 well as like the Victoria Gudvara, the Vancouver Gudvara. And then later, and, and you know, in the World War I period, Gudvara is in Hong Kong. Um, and I think that that was particularly alarming in the eyes of the British Empire because they re- they recruited um, Sikhs as um, military officers, right? I mean, the British Indian Army really um, perpetuated this idea that Sikhs were somehow an inherently martial race and the most, you know, these are all also their own racial formations, right? Um, the most warrior-like of all Indian races, et cetera, et cetera. And any notion that there would be a threat to seek loyalty to the empire was really um, concerning. That was a real threat in the eyes of the British. So the, I, the fact that Gudvaras all across the diaspora become the sites in which this anti-colonial organizing is happening is particularly alarming because of the British Empire's own reliance on Sikh soldiers in the British Indian Army. And I think that the, the, um, the role, you know, one of the things that some, some officials write about this in some of the intelligence reports that I came across, where there would be meetings um, where some former officers would sort of burn their medals, right, or burn certificates or, or burn any affiliation of, of their their record, their historical record with the British Indian Army. And these acts, uh, again, were seen as as really threatening and dangerous to the empire. And so uh, Sikh subversion, you know, in particular, I think, um, caused concern. And then a lot of these calls of the Devon Society would be an example, these organizations or um, societies, you know, um, that emerged, they emerged initially to provide social and economic support to migrants. They were not political organizations in that way. Um, But of course, over time, as the uh, racism and racial violence grew, they became organizations that also were engaged, right, in in a kind of resistance to the way, to the treatment of Indian migrants in particularly Canada and the United States. Um, and, And when you think about the spaces that these migrants had to congregate, to be in, in, in community, to have meetings, to express political ideas. Um, the Gudvaras, of course, become the space that become the site, you know, in which these conversations um, can occur. Yeah, and I can only imagine other examples such as funding or remittance and this colonial link with the homeland, as well as being centres for salvation and survival, basically. So when did it, all of this radicalism start to settle down and did it come to an end due to maybe partition and maybe the end of the independence movement? Well, I mean, so my, my book only goes through to about the 1919, 1920 period. Um, and I mean, what, so what happened in a U.S. context is that the, the migration period of Indians to the U.S. was actually quite short. So if the first major wave came in 1905, well, by 1917, uh, they were no longer allowed to come here. So in 1917, the United States passed, as I said before, the Immigration Act of 1917, and it had a provision in it 
called the Bard Zone Act. And the Bard Zone Act said, if you come from this zone in the world, and it was, it was um, you know, explained by actual latitude and longitude markers, then you, that is now a Bard Zone and people who come from that part of the world are no longer allowed to come here. Well, at that point, um, you know, the Chinese and the Japanese had already been excluded. And so it was quite clear that that was intended to exclude Indian people. And as was the case with Canada, um, the British Empire did put pressure on the United States to find a way to exclude Indians without explicitly excluding them. So the Chinese Exclusion Act was very explicit, right? It said, if you are Chinese, you basically can't come here. But, but the, Britain didn't want the United States to do that. And so they came up with this Bard Zone Act. And so uh, but after 1917, it became very difficult for Indian people to come to the U.S. And that's not to say no one came. Certainly there were, you know, a few people would still come, but as a kind of migration wave, it was essentially over by 1917. Um, some, and, and their organizing continued, but the numbers were so small at that point um, because hundreds of Indian migrants left the U.S. at the start during the particularly the early part of World War I, with the intention that they were going to go back to India and overthrow British rule. Um, and so hundreds of them actually left and went back. And many of them were arrested before they even stepped off the ships because American intelligence had provided Brit British India with records, with information about who was coming so a lot of times they, they knew exactly who was coming and they, they arrested them before they even left. Now, some people were able to get through, but much of the leadership of the Gadar movement left at that point, particularly the Punjabi Sikhs. They left and that sort of ended, that sort of ended that, you know? And then I think in India, one of the things I write about um, in the book is that these, these, other activists who went back to India, they weren't really prepared for the lack of um, excitement that they would encounter in Punjab, right? So they're, they're so fervent in their anti-colonial, anti-racist beliefs. They're so, they believe so deeply in their cause. But it's really interesting to think that they are operating in a context in an American context, right? So there, this movement, and I think this is really important. I think it's really important to understand that the geo-historical context and emergence of Gadar was the United States, not India. And so when they went back to India, they were devastated, many of them, that people back home did not want to participate necessarily in this, in this uprising. And so certainly you have some figures who continue the work, you know, you have figures like Lajpat Rai and Bhagat Singh who continue this work into the twenties and the thirties. Um, and Gadar persisted, but I think it's strength really kind of diminished after World War one in large part because of the persistence and the suppression by British, American, and Canadian officials who really went after and did everything they could to destroy that anti-colonial movement because they saw it as a real threat to British rule in India. And then, you know, I mean, there are some people, Sohan Singh Bakna was the first president of the Gadar Party in Oregon, and he lived into to be into his nineties, and he went back to India, I believe, in World, during World War One, and he remained an activist until the end of his life, and even as late as the nineteen sixties, spoke out against the war in Vietnam, the U.S. war in Vietnam as an imperialist war. Um, but a lot of these leaders, you know, were were imprisoned, some were executed. Uh, so I think that the incredible 
strength and potential of the movement in that what World War I period, I don't think they really ever were able to come back from. Um, and that was, again, there were, you know, there were some sort of internal factions that emerged, but I think largely this is, is a consequence of state suppression. What was the role and significance of the museum, which you write about in its documentation and showcasing this history, especially with the role of memory in all of this, when we must draw comparisons with what's happening today and so on? How significant is that museum in California with regards to everything that we've spoken about today? Yeah, you know, I have not, unfortunately, had the opportunity to visit the museum yet. Um, But I think that, I mean, I I think there was some controversy around its establishment. Um, And I think that, you know, Gutter really kind of in its second incarnation was a very, very strong communist affiliated movement, right? A very anti-capitalist kind of movement. And I think some people weren't entirely comfortable with commemorating that party because they had this sort of communist affiliation with it. But I think that you're, what you're pointing to is, is that this is, that Goodwill in Stockton is so central, is such a focal point to, particularly if you're Sikh American, to our history in this country. It was in many ways, I would argue, a kind of epicenter, right? And I think it's important that we understand that it was doing this work that I find to be quite inspiring, right? That was not a religious nationalist kind of project, which is certainly like, if you think about what's happening in, in India at the time, religious nationalism is really kind of dominating political organizing. Um, but it was a movement that I think, um, I think Sikhism was so central to many of these activists' sense of, of, of who they were and their place in the world, right? Um, and they, they talked about, they named a lot of their scholarships, like the Guru Gobind Sahib Scholarship Fund or the Komagat Maru, which was a ship that came to confront the British Empire in California, that some of the passengers, you know, referred to it as Guru Nanak Jahaz or something. And, and I think that Sikhism was so important to how they conceptualized themselves and the work that they were doing. And so I think that having this memorial at the Sikh Gudvara now in Stockton, which has the original Gudr printing press and acknowledges the importance of that space in this larger anti-colonial history is incredibly significant. And I'll be interested, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't know how people who's, who go there are engaging with that space. I don't know what their reaction to that memorial is or how they're thinking about that memorial. And, and I think that, I think, you know, what's happening right now in, in, in India is so remarkable. And I'm talking about the, the farmers um, Punjabi farmers were descending upon Delhi and engaging in these amazing protests and, and 250 million people across India are also in solidarity engaging in protest. And it's just remarkable. I mean, it's the largest protest in the history of the, the world, potentially. And it's amazing. And I'm seeing a lot of kind of dialogue on social media from young Sikhs, Sikh Americans about what's happening in India and the sort of hashtag I stand with farmers, which I think is amazing. And, 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 and it's amazing to see what's happening in India right now. Um, And I wonder how much, you know, they realized that there was such a strong movement against now of course now it's neoliberalism and back then it was capitalism right the exploitative nature of capitalism and i wonder you know how we can kind of get young people particularly in the u.s context because that's where i am that's where i grew up that's where much of my work takes place to kind of make these connections right to understand that we are um part of a genealogy of of political activism, of anti-racist struggle, of anti-colonial struggle. 
And that what's happening now can be connected to what happened over a century ago, right? Um, and so I, I don't know what that mon- what that memorial will yield, um, but I hope it allows us an opportunity to understand that we come from a history of of political activism. That um, you know, I think I, I don't I didn't see growing up. I would say, right? Um, and I and I hope we can sort of see more now. And and I and let me just say one more thing, which is that it's a political activism and a history of struggle and resistance and social justice that's not just about us, right? It's not only on behalf of Indian Americans or Sikh Americans, that it's also, it's always in solidarity with struggles. Um, and I I think that these early migrants, some of them understood that and they they are they articulated that, right? That you know, they, they wrote these really astute kind of manifestos or even or books about Western imperial expansion as the driving force of American history that began with the genocide of indigenous people, continued with slavery, um, and then, you know, manifested in different ways, not, you know, immigrant exclusion, racial violence, not to say that those are all equivalent necessarily, because they're not, but to understand that, you know, how we can stand in solidarity with other anti-racist struggles and movements for social justice. And for me, learning about this period and these activists um, really allowed me to, to make those connections historically and to think about how I can continue to do that kind of work today. Thank you so much, Professor Seema Sohi, for taking the time to discuss your monumental work on telling the anti-colonial history of the early settlers in North America from Punjab. Your work is a real inspiration and it was an honour to have you on. I'm a big fan of your work and thank you for your book, Echoes of Mutiny. And also thanks again to our generous patrons that allow me to create these podcasts. So please do let me know which topics you'd like to hear next in the near future I'd also like to thank our sponsor of this episode, Stick Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media pages that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more episodes and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more in the near future, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to create and generate more episodes. Thank you.